It's Tuesday, March 29th. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio today for Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Back in the saddle. Back in the saddle. I had to, I had to get you back in here because of, of what we're going to be talking about. Um, we'll dip into the full mailbag, but let's start with a company that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that's McCormick. Sure. The spice maker hitting a new high today. First quarter profits, much higher than expected. And the, the stock hitting a new high, the stock's only up about 1.5%. I, I want to get to the valuation of the stock in a minute, but first, you looked at the quarter. What stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess what stood out to me is that nothing really stands out. I mean, this is more of just kind of like the same old, same old for this company, and that's really good. I mean, that's what investors want is a company with a a wonderful brand in a market that will really never disappear. It's always going to generate repeat sales, and they're always going to have a wonderful position uh, in in virtually every grocery store you ever find their products because their products are good and they have such a vast array. And um, I mean, I, I've loved this company as a kid just. When my mom was teaching me how to cook, I mean, our, our spice cabinet, and I'm sure yours at home, and everyone else around the country is full of McCormick spices. Whether it's some sort of generic or McCormick or higher end brand, um, McCormick just has a real, uh, a really wonderful position in, in this market that that is going to be just extremely difficult to ever really overcome. And I think a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the brand and reputation they've built throughout time. I mean, there is really a lot to that. But then also just the infrastructure, the facilities to really to, to really produce all of this and the money that they continue to invest in what they do. And it's not just salt and pepper. And I think that's what people always have to remember is that McCormick is is I mean it's it's kind of like a it's like a chemistry lab when you go there. You know, I've told people we go uh, we we've been there before to the, to the factory here in Hunt Valley, and and they have like these secret labs where they're developing new flavors and scents for their high priority clients, and they won't disclose names and and stuff like that. So you know that they've earned a lot of trust in this market, and so they continue to grow their top line at just nice little you know mid single digit rates, and and that flows down to the bottom line nicely because they're able to, to leverage those operating expenses and. Um, grow earnings per share at a healthy clip, and they continue to buy a little bit back in the way of stock, which helps, and they pay a little dividend, which is nice. And I mean, I've always felt like this would just be such a wonderful Berkshire Hathaway acquisition. They're really looking for something to move that needle. This is a big enough company to where I mean, Berkshire has the resources to do it. I, I just always thought it would be such a wonderful Berkshire Hathaway company. It hasn't happened yet. Is the stock? Expensive because for it the is. type I mean, for the type yeah. of quarter that they had, you would you would think that the stock would pop a little bit more unless this is a stock that's already a little pricey. It is, and I, I we've always we we talk about it on the MDP team all the time because it's it's a recommendation in Stock Advisor. I think it was once a recommendation in Inside Value, and it's one that we continue to look at as a potential idea for for million dollar portfolio and and on the surface it is anywhere from 30 31 32 times earnings i mean with a company that's not growing at those kinds of rates it, not even close really it looks very expensive but i think this is one of those businesses it it has always looked that way uh with the exception of of particular times like maybe the recession or whatnot, but I think there it deserves the premium multiple because of its its competitive position, 
because of smart management, because of the brand power, uh, because it has become just, it's kind of like that automatic. You just know when you get it, it's what you want, and it's it's just old, reliable, and a very, very well-run business. It's it's not one that I would say, hey, go out and buy the stock right now. I, I, I just I, I because for me, as much as I love the business, I, I would rather be more opportunistic. But it's one where I, I would keep it on the list. And and when the going gets tough, uh, this is one that you could look at throwing in that portfolio and, and keeping for a very long period of time. Last question, and then we'll move on. One of the things that <laughs> the executives had said in terms of guidance was that the negative impact. A foreign currency, foreign currency, is going to be lower than they originally thought. The negative impact will be lower than originally thought. Sure. Is that just? Is that? I look at that and I think, well, wait a minute. Is that just how McCormick runs their business, or is that something where we're possibly going to see a trend of more companies coming forward and saying, "Hey, the currency impacts we thought we were going to." Be hit with aren't really as bad as we originally thought. So I mean, McCormick is a global business. I mean, they have they have market positions everywhere. Recent acquisitions in China, um, Australia. I mean, they they cover the globe, and so currency is always going to be an impact with this company. And they're very good in their releases in in talking about growth rates and then growth rates x currency or in constant currency. And generally speaking, we. See currencies as a long term, uh, just neutral. Like we do, we don't see we don't we, you know really trying to bake those into any real assumptions there because in the the longer in the longer run they go up they go down and they kind of even out. Um, but it is something to pay attention to with McCormick because I think in some cases you can see where perhaps they'll talk about currency headwinds where the market might take a little bit of a shorter term approach their focus and and maybe the stock will feel some pressure because they feel like well this is going to be dead money for the next few quarters um, and, and those can be windows when when the stock can can present itself as perhaps a deal but it, this is just I mean this is one of those businesses I think to see a meaningful drop in shares you would need to see either the loss of a really big industrial partner because they have an industrial side and a consumer side of the business they have a lot of big industrial partners you would have to see the loss of a big industrial partner, or you would have to see some sort of health scare. I think that one of those two things would be the type of event that might send this stock really down um, in a short period of time. Not, not that I'm hoping for either one of those, um, but, but again, I think it's just a testament to sort of the reliability of this business and why it's done so well over time. On the radio show last week, one of the things you had mentioned was LinkedIn. And and I want to go back to that for a second because the shares of LinkedIn, not having a good 2016, down more than five percent over the past week and falling again this morning after getting a downgrade from an analyst at Barclays. Is this a company that needs to be more? And I'm not saying that they're not transparent, uh, but when I think about how. Last year, Google rejiggered its corporation, became Alphabet, and the the main purpose of that appears to be, or certainly one of the main purposes of that appeared to be, giving investors greater transparency, greater insight into exactly how the company is making money, 
what's uh, what they're spending money on in terms of the moonshots, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'm wondering if one of the things maybe LinkedIn could be doing a better job of is being more transparent about how they're making making money because they're making money, but I I think that it's easy for I I know I'll just speak for myself. I look at LinkedIn and I am colored by my own experience with that in the same way that my own experience at a restaurant or you know wherever will will influence how I view that company. And is your experience with LinkedIn typically I mean is that favorable or is it kind of like meh or are you just It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I don't pay them. Right. And that's and that's part of it. I look at LinkedIn and I think well someone's paying them but it's sure. not me. Yeah, <laughs> nor is it me. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, when you looked at Link, when you look at LinkedIn, what do you see as a catalyst for turning around what's been a rough few months? Well, I'm glad you said that word. That was the exact word I think that investors should focus on. With with, I mean, any business really, particularly business that's witnessed a lot of pressure like LinkedIn has, is tell me about the catalyst that turns this thing around. Um, I have a lot of mixed emotions about LinkedIn. I mean, LinkedIn is one that I followed for a very long time, and for those who don't know the business very well, primarily it makes its money by selling licenses to corporations so that those corporations or companies can access that data within LinkedIn that we all input as professionals, so they can find people that that you know will, will fit those job descriptions and try try to make they try to make the job search more efficient and and bring more talent to the forefront. More easily, and and that generally speaking works. Now, the company historically has earned a very big premium. The stock has earned a very big premium because of, I think, a lot of lofty expectations. Because they are the name, they are the professional network, right? That's, and that was Steve Rado's question yeah. to you on the show last week: was, well, who's their competition? And there there is not an obvious competitor. There's not an obvious competitor, though. I would say. Before maybe maybe three years ago, there was plainly no obvious competitor whatsoever. I, I would say today, though, you look at it and the path. I said last week, the path to success is is definitely not nearly as clear. And so, one thing I thought about over the weekend is, as as I was sort of mulling over that a little bit more, and and it strikes me that one thing LinkedIn was supposed to do was to. Serve as a communication platform for businesses within their walls. Like they wanted to be a way for companies to to communicate within their walls as, as like an intranet, uh, perhaps a messaging platform, something like that. But but it was something that that companies would be able to use as a way to uh, manage their online uh, resources and identity within their walls. When you look at something like Slack today, and Slack is just one example. Slack is is essentially just a messaging platform, but it it's a good one. Um, it's one that has specifically catered towards businesses and companies. We it's use it here. Something we use here. Um, to me, I look at that and I think, wow, that to me, the one thing LinkedIn is missing, the one thing LinkedIn needs more than anything in the world, is a reason to engage. They are searching for a way to generate meaningful daily engagement. I have my information plugged into LinkedIn, and I use LinkedIn on occasion, I guess, if I'm prompted to go there for whatever reason. I don't go there typically very often. It does not, I don't have a reason to go there. And I think most people with a profile in there 
don't have a reason to go there, particularly if you're employed. So, LinkedIn's engagement is a problem. Endorsements, another big problem, because what was supposed to be something that would complement your online resume has now become, I, I honestly think it diminishes value, because I, I look at someone's professional profile on LinkedIn, and I see all of these endorsements, and I, I don't know what endorsement actually means something versus another one that was just uh, a prompt from a spam email that they sent. Right, and 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 they would do that. They would send emails and just prompt you to, hey, go ahead and endorse four people at once for something. So I, I, I get endorsements from people I don't know for things that I don't do. <laughs> now, to me, that's a problem, and 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 it's it's widespread. And so what they've done is they've taken, I think, what was a good idea, and, and to my mind, they've completely ruined it. I mean, they have completely ruined it, and there there is no meaning there anymore. So another reason why I think they've got to go back and rethink how much value that actually contributes. What the long-term plan is there, and so to your thoughts on transparency, there, I think the biggest question right now is sort of what what's next? What do they do next? Because while I'm not sitting here saying Slack is going to unseat LinkedIn by any means, I have a hard time seeing LinkedIn going in there and unseating Slack with what Slack is doing. Slack is generating meaningful daily engagement within companies and all of their employees. We use Slack in the office, out of the office, at all hours of the day. LinkedIn should have should have gotten that, and I'm I'm disappointed they didn't. I think shareholders are too. I think the the questions out there now really are going forward. How what are they going to do? Because if they want to if they want to participate in that market, well, they're going to have to buy it because they they clearly are not going to be able to go and seat Slack at this point. Because Slack, I mean, that's a business now that's it's private still, but it's it's going to raise some funding here. It's going to be about a four billion dollar valuation. The numbers are growing, so I think there's a lot of data behind that. And and it's just generally speaking, it's a platform that is used a lot. And so when you see something like that, sure, maybe four billion dollars is is not necessarily the correct valuation. Maybe it is. Maybe it's more. I don't know. But but the point is, that's a market where LinkedIn should have really nailed <laughs> that presence, and they didn't. And and so I think you have all of these questions as to where do they go? What do they do next? The path is just not as clear as it once was. It's a good business. It's a good management team. Uh, it's a stock I sold at the end of January because I was losing faith in it. Um, I called it out on on Motley Fool Money last week just because of that very reason. It probably does okay over time, uh, but it's just not one that I have at the top of my list. It's like one that's really changing the world at this point. I like that you're being endorsed for things that you don't do. I like. I, I mean, that's just. <laughs> I just like that someone's like surgery. Trust yes, that, that could be like an entire podcast right there. <laughs> we could talk about that for hours. Marketfoolery at fool com is our email address uh, from Jester Bobbity. I'm guessing that's not a real name. What is the rationale for shorting Walt Disney right now? Uh, I've only been investing a couple of years, so I buy mostly well-known brands. ESPN numbers have been flat. Studio growth is amazing. Merchandising is strong. They're about to open a theme park in China with more than the population of the United States within a five-hour drive. Uh, why are people shorting this stock? What am I missing? Um, and uh, The email included a link to a story from Forbes uh, just from uh, earlier this week. And the headline of the story is Walt Disney becomes number one most shorted Dow stock, replacing Caterpillar. 
Uh, I'm not surprised that Caterpillar was the number one shorted <laughs> stock on the Dow Jones. <laughs> That's uh, a no-brainer. Huh? And and again, keep it always w- worth noting when we talk about the Dow Jones, we're talking about an index of 30 stocks. Yeah. So it's it's not the biggest index in the world, but I, I while I'm not surprised that Caterpillar was number one, I'm a little surprised that Disney has replaced it. Yeah. Do you think? I mean, other other than we'll get to the ESPN stuff in a second. But other than ESPN, what's what's the number one concern that someone would have about this company? It can't be about pricing power. I think there are some questions maybe in regard to leadership and how capable leadership will be once Iger steps down, because Iger really has done a wonderful job with that business and the trifecta of acquisitions that he's that he's overseen in his time there with. Pixar, Marvel, yeah. Lucasfilm. He's but he's there another two years. He is, you're right. And so I, it's like you said before taping. I mean, <laughs> someone's got to be number one, right? So yeah. I, for whatever reason, uh, Disney is, and I, it could be any number of reasons out there where large funds holding whatever kind of a short position are looking to close it out, and perhaps tomorrow this number changes. So I can't. It's it's hard to speak it speak to it from that perspective. And I think the ESPN concerns are valid, but to me, that's more of a question of distribution as opposed to value in the platform. And I think that really what we've seen with the internet is just it's disrupting the way things are being distributed. It, but ultimately, I think that's a good thing because it, it offers a potential much greater audience. Um, but when we talk about recurring revenue, it is worth noting that about half a billion dollars worth of recurring revenue for ESPN. Has walked out the door sure. in the form of people cutting their cable. Yeah, and I think that one thing that I'm looking for them to do, and I'm not sure they're going to do this so soon, is to offer over-the-top options. Right now, they're they're focused more on whittled-down cable packages, and based on the numbers in the last call, it sounded like they had actually ticked up a little bit in in subscribers because of more offerings with with whittled down cable packages so that's great i think generally speaking the, the attractive part about the sports market is that it's so big and and so global and so important to so many people there's a lot of money um, to be had there and i think that disney will continue to figure out new ways to innovate the distribution of all of that valuable espn content so i could see in the near term where there's some questions in regard to that and how it'll affect profitability because it certainly will or it can um but I think, generally speaking, when I look at this, and I think my philosophy on shorting, and I don't do it. I don't do it because it's just not really how I view investing. I just try to make it as easy as I can. It's much easier to think glass half full as opposed to glass half empty. But if I were to do it, it would be based on the quality of the business and not the valuation. I would never short on valuation. The reason why is valuation, like it or not, is subjective. I mean, there are numbers behind every valuation that's out there, but the market at the end of the day is a big disagreement. And you've got buyers and sellers, and both parties think they're right. Valuation is subjective. The quality of the business is less subjective. It's much more. Uh, it's much easier to to look at a business from the bottom up, look at management, business model, market opportunity, competitive advantages, and so forth, and determine the quality of the business and say, okay, this is a very high quality business. 
I don't know why you would want to go out there and short a high quality business, even if you felt like the valuation was out of control, because valuation again is extremely subjective. Everybody out there bitching about Amazon, you know, you've gotten killed. All right. Now I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm just saying the fact, right? Yeah. I mean, if you went and shorted Amazon at a hundred bucks or 180 $200 because you just extremely overvalued, well, you know, you got you got killed. So valuation to me, I, I don't know how I don't know what the arguments behind the shorts there are, but but my philosophy, if I were to short, it would base it would be based solely on the quality of the business and never on valuation because everybody's got an opinion on valuation and um, we're not all right. We're not <laughs> we're not all right. We're not all right all the time. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to mention again just a couple of days left in our contest to win an investing library. You can go to podcasts. .fool.com. That's podcast.fool.com. This Friday, we're going to be picking 10 winners, so you've still got a couple of days left to go. Enter your email address. Um, We're giving away, well, I was going to say we're giving away 10 books, but when we taped taped the podcast, David Gardner threw in a couple extra books. (laughs) I I assume he's covering that. (laughs) Well, you know, they're they're in house. They're all full books, right? Yeah, they're they're full books. So 10 winners. All get that entire library. All ten, yes, ten That's people cool. get the entire library. And I, I saw all those books. That is a really good library to have. It's a good list. Yeah, it's I've a, read a lot of. Them. It's a very good list. And I didn't um, uh, when I was going out to people like, uh, well, everyone, you, uh, Ron Gross, uh, Joe Mager, etc. I didn't. The only the only stipulation I gave to people was. Hey, here's here are the books that other people have picked so far. So you can't pick these books. You can pick anything else, and uh, it it really is a great uh, it's a great set of books because yeah. there are there are books that are very much about how great companies get built. Uh, there are books that speak to the mind of an investor, the psychology of investing, uh, and then just some other classics, Robert Brokamp's. Uh, no, stocks for the long run. The fifth edition, because the fourth edition was Not just so terrible. yesterday. Just terrible. Well, I'll throw uh, I'll throw a little bonus in there for listeners today. I just finished over the spring break trip to Charleston, a book called The Facebook Effect, written by Kirkpatrick. Oh yeah, and easy easy read, but really enjoyable, very enlightening, and and it really I, I walked away with a number of different emotions and sort of how. How I'm I'm looking at the world going forward with the advent of social media and the internet and technology and mobile and everything like that. Just a really really good book, um, a lot of fun. I would recommend. And if you've not read it yet, read it. The Facebook David Kirkpatrick, isn't it? Yeah, I believe so. All right, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.